Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. On today's show, our monthly segment, The F Word. The editors of Lukman Nation join us to talk about open racists and fascists running for elected office. If we had a society in which we had a, a strong advocacy for working people, for marginalized people, for the middle class, we wouldn't be having the kind of conversation about fascism existing in this country that we're having now. And Lydia Curtis attends the memorial for an inspiration of her youth, Arthur Mitchell, founder of the Dance Theater of Harlem. He said, I'm just going to try to find the best black dancers I could find, make the best ballet dancers of them, and we will have for the first time a black ballet dance company. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. The Senate voted Thursday 51 to 46 to end U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia's genocidal war on Yemen, which is responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of men, women, and children and the starving millions. Senators also approved a separate resolution to hold Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia responsible for the death of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The vote on the war resolution by Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, was the culmination of months of advocacy by Sanders and his two co-sponsors, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, and Mike Lee, Republican of Utah. Sanders spoke at a press conference after the vote. Both progressives and conservatives have made a profound statement that 45 years after the passage of the War Powers Act, 45 years later, finally, the United States Senate has come together to use that authority for the first time and say that the responsibility for war, the constitutional responsibility for war, rests with the United States Congress, not the president, whether that president is a Democrat or a Republican. The war resolution was also the culmination of grassroots organizing by many peace groups and activists. Claiming victory, Code Pink released a statement that said, quote, We have been working to end the war on Yemen for years, and today we are celebrating. This is a big step forward and is energizing. We are using this moment to step up our efforts to counter militarism everywhere, end quote. The House of Representatives will not consider the war resolution until next year. The Yemen vote is considered to be a rebuke to the Trump administration's steadfast support of both the war and Mohammed bin Salman. And the LGBTQ community also expressed a rebuke to the Trump administration and its anti-immigrant policies this week. Chantel James has more. LBGTQ activists and allies with Work for Peace came out to stand in solidarity with migrants with a march from the White House to the residence of Stephen Miller. Miller is a senior advisor to President Trump and a force behind nationalist immigration policy. The march was a dance through the streets to pop music from Latin America and the Arab world, complete with biodegradable confetti. 
as the protesters rallied in front of the White House before the march, Bilal Askariar established a clear sense of purpose for the party and talked about the ways queer activists have historically shown up for marginalized groups. We want to send a clear message to Stephen Miller, to Donald Trump, to General Kelly, to Secretary Nielsen, that what they are doing is not in our name. Stephen Miller is the architect of this administration's white nationalist, nativist, anti-immigrant agenda. Stephen Miller is the architect of the Muslim ban, of the dismantlement of the refugee program. Stephen Miller is the person responsible for separating children at the border, One over a hundred of us who are still separated from their parents. I want to take a moment and remember Roxana Hernandez, a trans woman who was murdered by ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. She was beaten by ICE after being severely dehydrated and sick and uh, imprisoned for over 10 days, not given any water or food because she sought asylum here. Let me remind all of you that seeking asylum is a legal, lawful act within U.S. law and international law. Work for Peace's campaign is work, not walls. Check out hashtag W-E-R-K, not walls, on social media to follow their further actions. From the White House, this is Chantal James. Protests and other grassroots organizing in D.C. is culminating in several key votes by the D.C. Council during the week of December 17th. In one vote, climate activists are scrambling to save the landmark Clean Energy D.C. Act, which is scheduled for a final vote on December 18th and would put D.C. on track for 100% clean energy by 2032. But amendments backed by the electric utility Pepco Exelon, introduced at the 11th hour by Councilmember Kenya McDuffie, would substantially weaken this climate bill and could significantly raise electricity bills according to a statement from the D.C. Climate Coalition made up of 100 organizations that have worked to pass the legislation. The coalition is urging D.C. residents to call members of the council and urge that the original energy savings bill be passed without the PEPCO Exelon amendments. Also on the 18th, the council is scheduled to vote on the controversial East End Health Equity Act of 2018, which governs the construction of a badly needed hospital serving wards 7 and 8 in D.C. At issue are provisions in the bill that would allow universal health services to bypass processes that ensure community input, transparency, collective bargaining by employees, and access to the hospital by Howard University Hospital students and residents. There will be a town hall on the issue of the D.C. East End Hospital Crisis on Sunday, September 16th, 4 to 7 p.m. at Union Temple Baptist Church, 2025 W Street in Southeast D.C. That's Sunday, December 16th, 4 to 7 p.m. at Union Temple Baptist Church. In these and other grassroots efforts, D.C. residents are expressing frustration that their elected representatives seem to be siding with corporations and the wealthy against the common good. This week, there was a Herculean effort by district residents to fight for their voting rights. Pete Tucker has more. 
In June, D.C. voters approved expanding the city's minimum wage, which will rise to $15 an hour in 2020, to include tipped workers. But four months later, the D.C. Council overturned D.C. voters and repealed that initiative, Initiative 77. In response, advocates sought to once again put the issue before voters. To force a referendum, they had just one week to submit 25,000 signatures. On Wednesday, they submitted over 35,000. That same day, a D.C. judge ruled that the signatures can't be counted because of a procedural error by the D.C. Board of Elections. The ruling likely dooms the referendum and, at least for now, the push for a $15 an hour minimum wage for tipped workers. Outside the courthouse, I spoke with Reverend Graylin Hagler, spokesman for the Save Our Vote campaign, an ally of the Restaurant Opportunity Center, which funded the push for Initiative 77. I asked Reverend Hagler about the forces fighting against raising wages for tipped workers. Well, I mean, the force that we're up against is really sort of uh, the, the politicians in the town who are ingratiated by campaign contributions that help to keep them in office by the corporate business and finance entities in the city. And therefore, we're also up against the, the financial and business entities in the city that want to basically rule the city and basically disempower people in terms of their vote, in terms of their voice, in terms of their ability to represent themselves. And so that's what we were struggling about here with this referendum, uh, basically making the point that our votes cannot be taken for granted, our votes cannot just simply be overturned. Now, we caused some, some real agitation on our part with the, with the business community and the politicians because they didn't believe we could take it as far as we took it. They, they figured they had wound down the clock, we had seven days in order to put together the position, they thought we would fold up tent and just go home. We put together 35,000 signatures in, in seven days which is a statement because people were angry. People were showing up uh, just down to our headquarters. People saying, I'm going to come to just sign because I'm sick and tired of this stuff. And that's what's out there. And we got to cultivate that, nurture it, get people to understand just how sick and tired we are. And not only being sick and tired, but the change that we can actually make by people power, by coming together to make that change. That was Reverend Graylin Hagler for On the Ground. I'm Pete Tucker. In culture and media, the Capital Bop Jazz Loft series is returning with a new home at 6953 Maple Street in Northwest D.C. And on the small screen, HBO is airing the feature-length documentary, Say Her Name, The Life and Death of Sandra Bland. And those are headlines and happenings. Later in the show, a special culture and media segment from contributor Lydia Curtis. But up next, our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivera, and this is the third show of December 2018. And on the third show is our monthly segment, The F Word, when we discuss fascism, what the revolutionary George Jackson described as the last stage of capitalism when the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. And those ideas also coincide with so many of the major social justice issues we've covered this year. Climate change, which is like a runaway train driven by the fossil fuel industries, our 
black and brown lives snatched from us by increasingly militarized police forces and the private prison industry, and the seemingly endless war cheered on by the military-industrial complex, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, etc., And with, of course, the corporate control of our elections, there is the specter of candidates laying bare or revving up the fascist elements that have always existed, not only in the Republican Party, but in American society in general. So not reported in our mainstream media in the last election were the number of openly fascist and racist candidates who not only ran for office, but won. So here to catch us up, wake us up to what is really going on is Jacqueline Lukman and Abdu Shahid Lukman, editors of Lukman Nation, which airs every Thursday night on Facebook Live. Welcome to On the Ground, Jacqueline and Abdu Shahid. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so let's jump right in. Let's start with elected officials or campaigns that really shocked you in their open allegiance to fascism or racism. I don't know that any of them really shocked me. That That's the thing I think that probably separates us from other people who have watched the elections, not just in 2016, but in previous years, especially since the rise of the Tea Party. I think maybe that was the shocking campaign for me, the, the rise of all of the Tea Party candidates and how they systematically, very methodically won small elections, small local elections, and ending up over the course of maybe two years, four years, really quietly in the background. Then the next thing you know, you have a bunch of Tea Party Republican governors. And then the next thing you know, you have a bunch of Tea Party Republican senators and congressmen. And then people are surprised, oh my God, where did this Tea Party come from? But they've been pretty out in the open since Barack Obama's nomination. And people just didn't take them seriously. So when they started to win like the local elections, school board, city council members in in different states, you know, people kind of thought, well, these people are a little bit wacky. They've got some weird ideology. They claim they are just anti-big government and anti-tax or whatever. But you could clearly see the racist strain coming through their town halls and the racist vitriol that they had toward Barack Obama. But what was shocking for me was how methodical their strategy was. They were undeterred in gaining what they wanted, which was to eventually win some governorships, to eventually win some Senate seats and some House seats, and eventually take over the Republican Party in the White House. Wow. So... Your comment made me think of something that I've known about, which is where they get their backing from. I mean, these people, they didn't just come out of the the bushes or the the, the weeds. I mean, they're well-funded by people like the Koch brothers. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Wisconsin and Scott Walker just, Mm -hmm. you know, had his hat handed to him after a long, bitter fight. And it's still not over, really, I guess. And you have uh, Sheldon Adelson and... Mm -hmm these people funding them. So do you think that this kind of backing had a lot to do with this kind of attitude of being undeterred that you saw? Well, let's, let's look at it this way. And the fact that none of this is shocking, even with the backing of big money, as we say. 
if we look at history, we see that wealthy people have backed the Nazi movement, that the Koch brothers, they fund both sides. And this was happening even during the fascist rise of the 1930s. So the wealthy have always done this type of thing. As George Jackson said, these are sort of like the end stages of capitalism. If we were following the, the violence of capitalism over the course of uh, the, the last couple of decades, how it's been basically decimating the working class, these always set the stages for a fascist movement and hypernationalism, and which led to the rise of Mussolini and the Hitler. So we saw this trend in the 30s, and it's not shocking because the same forces are at play here. So we've all established that we're not shocked. (laughs) But let's talk about some specific candidates, though. I'm thinking, and you probably know the exact particulars, but a candidate who, I think in Illinois, who said when he was asked if he was a neo-fascist, basically Mm -hmm. said, no, I'm not a neo-fascist. I'm just a fascist. Yeah, he he actually said someone called him a neo-Nazi. Oh. And he said, no, I'm not a neo-Nazi. I'm a Nazi. So tell us about that case. So, I mean, that's basically one of those people think it's an extreme. You know, people are like, oh, my God, how could. But this is a guy who received at least I think he received at least 30,000 votes. So it's not as if when he came out and said, no, I'm a Nazi. Everyone ran fleeing from him. No, some people were actually like, yeah, that's great. Let's elect this guy who lost his bid for election. But still, he got a pretty, what would be considered a respectable percentage of the vote for any third party fringe candidate. That is the problem in these cases. So, well, I mean, the fact that he exposed a particular attitude that was out there. I mean, at least 30,000 people shared his view. Right, right. So now you know that now you know who they are. So... What did you find was the attitude of the Republican Party? Because most of these people we're talking about, they have been connected to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Have they been, like in, in that particular case with Arthur Jones, who we were just talking about in Illinois, did the Republican Party try to shy away from this person? Or did they act like they were officially embarrassed? What has been the attitude toward these candidates? I think the Republican Party attitude has been... Official on the record in the media, we don't want anything to do with them. We, you know, we disavow racism and all this kind of that. They say the stuff that they should say in the media, but they really don't do much to distance themselves from the blatant overt racists in their party who they back in these races. One of those people was Ron DeSantis. I mean, here's a man in Florida who I'm not going to say he won that race against Andrew Gillum because there were some serious problems with voter suppression and election fraud and have always been. Florida's just been a mess since the 2000 election. But Ron DeSantis is someone who spoke at a conference, at an annual conference that was organized by a white nationalist Holocaust denier. And he Mm -hmm. spoke at this man's conference Four years in a row. And when Mm. he was confronted with the fact that, look, why did you speak at this racist man's conference? Well, what am I supposed to know about what he believes? I just spoke at his, you know, so. Yeah, what was the conference about, though? Right, right. This man's ideology wasn't a secret. Everybody knows that he's a Holocaust denier. Everybody knows that he's a white nationalist. So there's no way that Ron DeSantis did not know what this man was all about. But not only did the voters who voted for him in Florida not care, 
But the GOP didn't care either. Right. Because the GOP backed him full, full, full heartedly, the same way they did with Brian Kemp in Georgia. You know, years and years of voter suppression that was aimed specifically at black and poor voters. And the GOP is silent on that. Yeah, and I think we saw this being played out when 45 wouldn't disavow himself from David Duke and how he said that there were good people on both sides (laughs) of the Charlottesville, you know, demonstration. But the Republicans, they've been playing this game with racialized politics for decades. And that's the way that they've been winning lately by basically, you know, appealing to that side of a large segment of, of people in this country. You know, I didn't want to lose my train of thought because I wanted you to specifically talk about Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people don't know about him, but he is a person who consistently makes really rapidly racist <laughs> comments. Mm-hmm. And I'm really aware of the fact that it's become normalized. Yeah. Like that's okay. Yeah. Yes. And so what what are your what are your thoughts on Stephen King? This is someone who's in Congress for how long now? Uh, he's been in for a few terms. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully he'll lose his reelection bid. The problem is a lot of these I think Steve King is one of those was one of those Tea Party candidates who's from a very, very red state who that supported Trump. Right. So we're not talking about somebody who's going to be able to come in and just say, I'm a Democrat and I'm not Steve King. And they're just going to automatically win. And that is the weakness. That's the problem with the Democratic Party, especially now that the only message a lot of of Democrats have is we're not those guys. So I understand that people are all excited about the blue wave that the Democrats won back the House, but the Democrats couldn't win the Senate. And that's because the Senate, most of those seats are entrenched in those very red states Mm -hmm. that it's really hard to go in there without a message for people that's going to resonate with them. I mean, we have to be honest. A lot of the Republican voting base are racists. I don't know what else you call people who vote for people who say racist things right. <laughs> repeatedly. That There's just no other word for that. And Steve King has been around long enough, I think, to repudiate the idea that all of these racial issues that we're having are Trump's fault. Steve King was around before Trump became president. He was a racist then. So, I mean, you're right. I agree. This has become very normalized. But I think in the context that Americans, and you say this all the time, Abdus, Americans have a very short attention span when it comes to politics. We've got like a two to four year attention span when it comes to politics. We forget things that politicians have done in the previous administration, in the previous election cycle. And then especially when we have somebody like Donald Trump as the benchmark, then everybody else looks like a saint. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier when you said uh, how, of course, Republicans have been playing this racial politics, racist politics forever. But on the other hand, you don't see the Democrats strongly repudiating it like they should or could. Like, for example, even coming out against strongly against voter suppression. I mean, when you saw what happened in Florida, when you saw what happened in Georgia, I was really conscious of the fact that this is what happened in 2016. 
right. you know, not Russia, right. you know, not right. WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. but the sub- suppression of votes in 2016. And because they've never accepted that narrative or adopted that narrative or supported the African-American community in terms of voter rights. But I think that one thing that happens is that you don't have a strong party just coming out in support of voter rights. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely true. And and again, that that's like the, the major weakness of the Democratic Party when the Georgia race was coming toward the end. And I kind of knew I hoped he wouldn't win, but I kind of knew I had to I I had to resign myself to the fact that Brian Kemp stole that election and he was going to steal it and it was and and he was going to get away with it. I thought back to the fact that Brian Kemp was secretary of state for what, eight years in Georgia. So he's had eight years to do this, Mm -hmm. to, to keep black people from being able to vote just so he could set this up so he could win the governor. And when we say these kinds of things, people somehow believe that we're stretching the truth and, you know, this can't be, that can't be what they were doing. But no, they've been playing, they meaning the Republicans, Mm -hmm. have been playing this behind the scenes, very on the QT, long game, playing chess when, when the Democratic Party really does play checkers in these issues. And then you have a a party and then really a nation that is shocked when someone actually steals an election. Because for eight years, all of this massive voter suppression was going on, not just in Georgia, but in Wisconsin, but in North Carolina, in Michigan, in all of these states with, again, these Tea Party governors that passed all of these restrictive voter suppression, voter ID laws, closing polling stations, moving polling stations, doing all this. And the response from the Democratic Party was not raising the alarm for developing a, a front line for defending the constitutional rights of people, especially poor, black, and marginalized people to vote that was clearly under attack by the Republican Party. Right, and then these are the very same states where they wind up losing, Mm -hmm. right? Wow. So, you know, I'm aware, you know, being in D.C. of being in kind of like my own little left bubble, and (laughs) I saw, (laughs) I'm always so disgusted by the amount of bandwidth that the right-wing media has. One of the shows that I, every now and then, I can't help but see it because I'm flipping through channels, is this show, was Cheryl Atkinson? Anyway, she was the one when she was still in like a bigger corporate media um, location. She did the Fast and Furious scandal oh, during Obama's... Oh, that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> she did a piece where she was in a rural area. Uh, she was talking to a white waitress, and she was talking about how her establishment welcomed everybody and about how they they served everyone. They didn't discriminate against anyone in her establishment. And it made me realize that somewhere in that same town... People weren't welcome. Right. (laughs) And people weren't being served. So I'm really conscious of the fact that those of us inside the Beltway need to get outside the Beltway if we can, because it would help us to understand really 
how far things are going or how far things have gone back, whatever, <laughs> whatever however way you want to look at it. I mean, do you ever, just as, as journalists, get a sense just from talking to people outside of our, what I call a bubble here, of things just being really regressive in other parts of the country? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, Jackie and I, we had just came from uh, having a Thanksgiving uh, feast with my family. I'm originally from Camden, New Jersey. So we went to, over to my sister's house, and she was explaining to us the, the political machine in Camden is particularly disturbing. I mean, where you have uh, the Norcross brothers, who basically just control everything in Camden. I mean, it's like their they're little fiefdom. Mm. And while they were explaining this to us, we're like riding through Camden. We're seeing Campbell Soup. Subaru just built a brand new uh, headquarters there. No one hired anyone from the city. Billions of dollars in tax breaks. So the city is being continued being starved of revenue, tax revenue, and the people don't benefit. But yet you got these nice, shiny buildings. You have the Norcross brothers um, that we were told that were just making decisions. So they weren't elected to do that. I mean, it's just like a, a, um, a banana republic uh, up there. So yeah. tell us who they are. I don't, I don't know who the Norcross brothers are, so explain to well, us. Well, they're, they're part of the Camden uh, Democratic Machinery. That's basically, um, I would say, for lack of a better term, like a shadow government in a way. They're making all of these decisions, uh, political decisions, and, you know, without the people being involved. And Camden has a mayor. They have a, a, a city council that they elect, but it appears that they don't really make the decisions. They're like the power brokers um, behind, uh, you know, the so-called elected officials. Mm-hmm. That was one point. We live in D.C., and, and aside from Initiative 77, we're not used to that. But by and large, like we're not used to going to uh, vote for people and then having the people we vote for just do the exact opposite Fascism. of what we. But there are places in this country very close to us where we don't think of fascism already exists. Mm-hmm. Because when you have this shadowy entity behind the people who are elected, who are making decisions against the will of the people without the input of the people for corporations for corporations the what what is that if it's not fascism right let's take a brief break and we'll be right back This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Jacqueline Lukman and Abdu Shahid Lukman, editors of Lukman Nation. And they're my guests for this month's episode of The F Word when we talk about fascism. When you mentioned Camden, it reminded me that I don't want to... Uh, not take these people seriously who are openly racist, who are openly fascist. But say the author Jones in Illinois, he's almost like a cartoonish character mm-hmm. in a way, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe I wonder if we give too much emphasis 
and pointing out people like that, as opposed to the people already in power who are kind of implementing this neoliberal strategy mm. that is really ultimately either uh, fascist in itself mm-hmm. or ushering in Absolutely. the real fascism. So mm-hmm. it becomes really complicated because even though these people were so rapidly a racist against him. And I remember those Tea Party rallies. Oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. the thing is, the, the, the media really egged them on. Sometimes there would be maybe just 10 people out there, mm-hmm. but they would get all this publicity. But, you know, if we had an anti-war demonstration oh, with 100,000 wow. right, people, right. we couldn't get anything, exactly. right? But if there were 10 people with some Obama monkey signs right. or um, and spitting, I remember there. when they were spitting on the black legislators yeah. going into Congress. Yeah. I remember, I, I was just disgusted by the whole thing. But I'm wondering if we... It gets really complicated because these people are like rabbit racists opposing this man mainly because of his race, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you have Obama and his administration carrying on these neoliberal strategies that have decimated the country, that have hollowed out our economy, Mm -hmm. that have sent our jobs overseas. And so it's easy for someone to use the the springboard of race to really dive into what are legitimate issues that would make you oppose him right and use him as a symbol you know who called him the black mascot for wall street was that cornell west that was no dr west called him the black mascot for wall street uh, it may have been neoliberalism but uh, yeah i remember him calling him that so really, when you talk about all these strategies that have only not only hollowed out our economy at home, but perpetuated these wars abroad, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and even in our own homeland, you know, you have people selling slaves in Libya now. Mm-hmm. Right. So give me some feedback on that. We'll just try to you know, bring this in for a landing. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm not sure that we see it as being a complicated kind of issue. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an uncomfortable issue to talk about. Right. And and it's never easy and it's always a mess. But I think this Trump presidency and we have said this before, we lay this Trump presidency squarely at the feet of the Democratic Party for the for precisely the reason that you just said neoliberal policies that, that the Democratic Party has pushed since Clinton, really. Since because they ushered in the third way strategy that basically said, no, we're not going to deal with backing policies that protect specific groups of people. We're going to buy into the idea that, quote unquote, identity politics is a bad thing and we're not going to fight for the protection of certain people of certain identities anymore. We are just going to focus on policies that appeal to the middle class, white, moderate, conservative male voter. And that strategy ended up giving us Bill Clinton in the White House, who pushed some of the most racist, anti-black, destructive policies that decimated black communities and also gave us NAFTA. Exactly. Right. And, and I, I think um, when when we were talking about earlier, I think when you made the um, when you were talking about how the Democrats don't seem to be opposing these racist dog whistles that's mm-hmm. being used in the politics. And I think, Jackie, that you just mentioned um, the, the Clinton era, there was a decision that was made by the Democratic Party or the Democratic leadership somehow to try to go after the same what they used to call them the Reagan Democrats, you right. know, to, right. to appeal to those same type of people that the Republicans seem to have won over. 
And that was basically through appealing to white nationalism. So they really haven't really shied away from that. Black people, we understand that we're being uh, taken for granted in the Democratic Party. Uh, The Democrats know that we feel that way, but they don't care because they know that it's true. Because they feel like there's nowhere else that we can go. And I also want to say that we can't leave the Republicans out of this. When we say neoliberal policies, the Republicans were playing the same thing. Right. What led to this era of Trump happened to be this adherence to the Milton Friedman School of Economics, right. triple down right. economy and right. all this other kind mm-hmm. of stuff that we've seen being played out all over the world mm-hmm. and which is basically just violence against the working class. You know, so Trump comes with his populism. And just like Mussolini in the 30s, we cannot forget history. You know, it's the same thing. So Trump comes in with his populism. And and Jack and I, we kind of looked at the symbolism of Trump coming in on his plane like he's coming from Mount Olympus. (laughs) And you got all of these poor working people who idolize this guy, which is something kind of strange in America, how we, you know. Idolize the rich. Yeah, right, right. But, you know, you see this Trump plane coming down like he's God. And it was just something symbolic about that Mm -hmm. that showed us, you know, this dangerous path that we were going down in this country. There is no advocacy for working class people in this society. And Trump's not an advocate for working class people either, but they think he is. They they think he is, but they only think he is because there has been such a weak and anemic and not just non-existent focus on economic policies that will uplift working class people as well as... Uh, legislative or should I say justice focused policies as well as economic policies that would address the centuries of racial injustice. I mean, both have to be done and it's not an either or kind of thing. The The problem with the Democrats is they claim that it's either or. Well, we can't deal with race. We can't deal with racial issue. But, but if we deal with the economics, we can lift everyone up. Well, Barack Obama tried the rising tide lifts all boats, but when you don't have a boat or when you have a hole in your boat, when the tide comes in, you're still flailing in the water. So if we had a society in which we had a a strong advocacy for working people, for marginalized people, for the middle class, we wouldn't be having the kind of conversation about fascism existing in this country that we're having now. But because the corporations have had so much influence and like you, I agree with you, the Republican Party has been playing identity politics all along and they've set the narrative playing identity politics for uh, working disaffected working class white people and appealing to their nationalism. But then telling everybody else, oh, identity politics are a bad thing, then they're allowed to get away with their corporate greed by the very same people they sell that lie to. So we've been dealing with fascism in this country for a much longer time mm-hmm. than 2016. Yeah. Right. So every time you say something, I think of something else. <laughs> <laughs> but one idea was that when you said that Republicans are also practicing this neoliberalism, and I thought of the fact that this administration, this Trump administration, is basically showing them. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... I wonder how many times they have to be shown because Mm -hmm. the thing is when Reagan came in with very much kind of like the baby steps in the same direction, you know, he ballooned the budget. Nothing really improved for working class people. I mean, I think the 80s are considered this kind of 
mini gilded age but that was like wall street and that was Mm -hmm. that um that kind of life i was living in new york at the time so (laughs) and then when you talk about george bush and then the second bush so i wonder if this will be the administration that they finally realize okay well I, i guess i should put it this way If they continue with Trump, knowing that they are not really getting the benefits and the the economic benefits, then you know that it's just they're just getting the white identity benefits. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, then, yeah, you know, exactly. then you know that it's just what some people call the psychic wage. Yeah. Right. Because it's not because it's, it's not a real wa- it's not a real wage. And then you can really judge the. I don't know. This this the level of whether you call it just you know creeping fascism, <laughs> uh, racism in this country, and then I guess the last thing I want to ask you is about the since you talked about the Tea Party and I really remember it how important that movement was when you mentioned it. How beneficial or impactful you think that the new progressive wing of the Democratic Party can be? on the opposite side in terms of not executing a similar strategy, but they certainly have a goal of taking over the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Can this new energy, a lot of you know, newly elected women, I think uh, energized by Bernie Sanders' campaign, can they be that opposite force? And will this advanced stage of capitalism allow them to you know, beat back what has been this long trend over the last 40 years of just disempowerment of working people and the whole neoliberalism, you know, going amok? Uh, I want to be hopeful. I, I do. I, I'm, pro- I'm probably, I think I'm, I'm turning into like the, the pessimist of the two of us. I want to be hopeful that this new wave of progressives will make a difference in the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party is far too entrenched in their corporate identity now. The Democratic Party is like like W.E.B. Du Bois said, it's the other wing of the, the same evil bird. And the evil bird is corporatism. So we just found out because of one of these, a couple of these new progressives, that the Democrats invited Goldman Sachs and other Wall Street lobbyists to conduct the orientation for incoming for freshmen members of the house. I mean, there's no reasoning with those kinds of people. These people in the democratic party, just from looking at the way Pelosi has been able to maneuver and maintain her position and create some meaningless positions and throw some people in there, you know, that don't have any any kind of decision making power. And throw Barbara Lee under the bus. And throw Barbara right. Lee under the bus. Exactly. I hope they can make some changes. And I think they will make some changes. But I don't think that just yet they're going to make a significant DNA change. To the Democratic Party. Not right now. I I think that's going to take a couple of election cycles to get some more troops in, to to get some more support in for them to do that, because it's not enough of them right now. Well, let me say this. Um, No, you're not the most pessimistic one. Okay. (laughs) I think the only change that's going to come out of this, I see that, you know, there are attempts on behalf of these uh, incoming young Congress people to try to make changes. And I think that that's good. Where my pessimism comes in at 
is the fact that I think that the only change that's going to happen is they may make oppression a little more comfortable if they take over. I don't feel personally that you can reform this system. I, I really feel that this system is so corrupted that it has to be dismantled. I feel that to reform this system, we're fooling ourselves. This system has become so corrupted, so rotten from the inside, that it has to be dismantled and it has to be rebuilt all over again. And I know folks are saying, oh, wow, you know, that seems so far off, but it, it really isn't. I think that, you know, we, we might not live to see it, but if we are going to have any type of future. You talked about climate change earlier. There is no will on either side to really seriously combat climate change where we're looking at another mass extinction on this planet. So, and to have a government that would really respond effectively to these things on behalf of the people, you're not going to get it in the system. It has to be dismantled and rebuilt. You know, it's funny you you talk about climate change because just on social media, I run into people who I even consider friends. There are so many people in the Democratic Party who are still so embittered about 2016. And I don't mean embittered against Trump Mm -hmm. or the Republicans, but embittered against progressives. Progressives, Progressive Democrats. And every now and then, I even even heard on this station, (laughs) people (laughs) on the air belittling. Mm -hmm. Mm Ocasio-Cortez, talking bad about her, you know. (laughs) Another friend on social media, Still talking about Susan Sarandon. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I, it made me feel what you call pessimistic. It made me feel like, okay, we haven't gone anywhere. Mm-mm. If because Brett Kavanaugh got confirmed, mm-hmm. you're blaming Susan Sarandon. Right. You know what I mean? You're right. kind of, you're going back, you know, like on Mac, they have something called the Wayback Machine or something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. It's like you're going on the Wayback Machine. <laughs> and I was listening to coverage on Democracy Now! of the climate change conference in, in Poland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed a man who talked about how Trump had galvanized the climate movement. His that his actions had been so extreme and or his threats have been so extreme that people have really become galvanized. And that's all Susan Sarandon was saying. (laughs) That's all she was saying. She was saying, well, Trump is going to bring the revolution. I remember seeing her say this Uh on MSNBC and how, you know, fire and fury you know, rain down mm-hmm. her head whatever mm-hmm. but what she was saying is that this kind of incrementalism or putting a nice face on fascism mm-hmm. would just kind of allow things to get worse and worse exactly. whereas Trump is in your face with it you can't deny what it is at all <laughs> and that maybe that would really get people up off the couch exactly. and that's all she was saying that's I mean, all she and, and it's true I, it's, when she yeah. said that I said okay there you go. Exactly. Go. Yeah. I mean, how, how many black activists and, and, and our allies have, have said, you know what, when, when we knew that Trump would win? I mean, because there was a point at which there was a point in the 2016 election where we were just like, I'm sorry, this is done. This is, and, it, and it was long before the actual election. It was during the campaign. And, and I can't remember what it was we were watching. But we were sitting there watching some news coverage of something. And you knew Trump was going to win. And we yeah. just knew. It was like, you know what? This man is going to win the presidency. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party can do to stop it. Yeah. They didn't listen when we said that she couldn't beat him. And now she's really not going to win. And at that point, we were like, well, you know what? 
maybe this is the best thing that could possibly happen for this so-called left movement in this country to really galvanize, for people to have the facade ripped off of what this country really is. And man, the heat we got for them. Well, we were we, well, we were the ones that said when um, this was going on. We said Trump may be a necessary evil, and that mm. that was something that we used to say on oh, our show. We, we got a lot, yeah, of and we got a that. lot of flack from that. We said, yeah, Trump's going to be the necessary evil because that might be what it takes in order to again, like Susan Sarandon said, to galvanize us and get us off the couch. And I think to a certain degree, that has proven true. I think the downside with that is now you're having to educate a whole bunch of people who are suddenly off the couch. You know, they're involved, they're engaged because now they're afraid. So now you have to educate all these people as to why those of us who have been afraid for a long time because we've been living in this system and we've been a target of this system for a long time, why we're just like, we're not shocked. <laughs> we're, we're, yes, you're shocked about all this stuff that Trump is doing. But this has been like Tuesday for us. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there. I I just know that (laughs) the, the only other thing that I worry about, too, is the amount of damage that he's able to do in four years in terms of our climate. There was just a report that... We had kept emissions at a flat level for two years, but for the past two years, they've actually gone back up. Mm -hmm. And I know that has a lot to do with the United States. The fact that there's been this disregard coming from the administration, it doesn't help. No. So... Anyway, um, I want to thank my guests for joining me today, Jacqueline Lukman and Abdul Shahid Lukman, Lukman Nation. Thank you so much. And they are on Facebook Live every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. And YouTube. And YouTube. YouTube. Okay, awesome. And all (laughs) kinds of days in between. (laughs) All right, okay. But just they should check out Lukman Nation, L-U-Q-M-A-N. All right, thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for joining me. Our final segment for today is from Lydia Curtis on the ground in New York City. On December 3rd, dancers from across the nation gathered at Riverside Church in Harlem to pay tribute to Arthur Mitchell, founder of the Dance Theater of Harlem, who died on September 19th. In front of the sanctuary filled to capacity, actress Cecily Tyson sobbed openly as she told the story of their friendship and how she, Arthur Mitchell, and actor Brock Peters formed the ballet company in school. When Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, he met me as usual. We walked home together. He didn't have very much to say, nor did I. I guess it was because we were both stunned by what had taken place. Well, when I got home, the phone rang. It was Arthur. He said, I want to do something. We have to do something. We can't let his life go like this, we have to do something. I said, okay. He said, I'm going to think about it, and I'll call you back. 
He called me back, not that evening, but the following evening. And he said, I've come up with an idea. I've decided I want to start my own dance company. And I want you with me. So he said, come on over. It was 1.30 in the morning. I got out of bed, got dressed, grabbed a cab, and went over to him. We sat on the floor, and we talked for hours on end about what it would mean for him to do this. And he said to me, you know, there's one other person I think I'd like to have with us. It was Brock Peters, the actor. Brock lived to, that's right, go ahead. That's right, that's right. Thank you. It was an impressive gathering with many notables like Mayor Dinkin, Valerie Simpson who sang, icon Carmen de Lavalade, prima ballerina Lorraine Graves, drummer Donald Eaton, and the Dance Theater of Harlem Company members and students, both current and alumni. Mitchell was born in Harlem, March 27, 1934. He sang and danced all of his life and graduated from New York's High School for the Performing Arts. In 1955, he became the first black principal dancer in the New York City Ballet under the visionary George Valentine, where he remained for 15 years. For me, this memorial gave me a chance to reflect on my four plus years as a student at Dance Theater of Harlem and how Arthur Mitchell touched my life. I started classes there in the summer of 1973 and fell deeply in love with classical ballet because of the expert teaching and formal approach at the Dance Theater of Harlem. Every class was a serious exploration of what your body could do, how focused you could be, and how far you could push yourself. Mr. Mitchell only taught the company and advanced classes that I aspired to, but his reach was everywhere. He created an aesthetically beautiful environment where we danced to live classical piano. The staff was loving and supportive. On weeknights, I got out of class at 8 p.m. and got home at 10. There was an elderly black man who stood at the exit making sure everyone had a person or two to walk with to the train station for safety. No harm came to us because there was an unwritten hands-off policy towards Dance Theater of Harlem students out of profound respect for Arthur Mitchell and his contribution to the community. Because of him, I decided that dance was a possible career. Although that did not happen, I became a lifelong patron of the arts and have been a part of the Conqueron West African dance family for 27 years, performing on multiple levels in many venues in the Washington metropolitan area, as well as New York and Atlanta. When I retired from my day job, I turned to the arts full-time, teaching dance and theater with the Fillmore Arts Center and embraced an artistic and activist lifestyle. All this rests on the foundation focused on the basics that Dance Theater of Harlem laid. Respect for your teacher, 
patience and persistence, hard work, and complete focus. No side conversations, no late arrivals. Let me close with this. Arthur Mitchell commanded us to, quote, walk into a room knowing you are someone special. Don't ever let them smash that or pull you down. Here is what Dance Theater of Harlem alum apprentice dancer Adrian Vincent James said as we were leaving the service. ground contributor Lydia Curtis giving tribute to Arthur Mitchell founder of the Dance Theater of Harlem will have the last word on today's show. Special thanks to Lydia, to Chantel James and Pete Tucker for their contributions to today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can write us and listen to all of our current and past shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org which includes our new Patreon page. Thank you to all of our first members of Patreon for your support and encouragement. We certainly, certainly appreciate it. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Busy Bee Holiday Art and Gift Show September 21st and 22nd. That's at 1510 9th Street in Northwest D.C. So until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.